Amen. All right. I realized about four o'clock that I was lethargic and not feeling great and everything, and I think the problem was I um, was dehydrated, so I have brought up plenty of hydration resources up here. Is that the heater? Why is the heater on right now? What is happening in here? But um, All right, I want to put a plug in for this book um, because it does apply to the doctrine of God, okay? This was written by Ed Welch. This is our book of the month, by the way. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. And um, it is, uh, Ed Welch is a trusted Christian counselor. I think we've recommended one of his other books before. Uh, But uh, really, biblical counselor, very good at uh, taking the Bible and showing how it's applicable to us and helpful in different times. What, what is this book about? What do you guys think this book is about? When people are big and God is small. When not, not putting God first could be, yeah. He did, but what did he say? Do you remember? Right, okay, so pleasing God, not people. And the fear of people or the fear of man is what we call this. And when you think about the fear of man, it's not always like uh, I'm afraid of this person because he could beat me up or whatever. The fear of man is manifested in so many ways in our lives. Uh, And he does a great job at bringing out some of those ways. But now how does that connect to our doctrine of God? How does the fear of man connect to the doctrine of God? Yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah, we're afraid of what people are going to think about us. That's a big aspect of the fear of man. How is that tying into the, to our doctrine of God, specifically? Is God small? No. So what's he getting at? He's getting at this idea that people become bigger in our minds, controlling our emotions, controlling our thoughts, And when that is happening, God has become small in our minds and hearts, right? With a proper understanding of who God is, he becomes more and more magnified. Not that he gets bigger than he was, but do you know know what I mean? He's more magnified in our minds and hearts, and our, our biblical fear of him then drowns out and drives out our fear of man and their thoughts and their opinions. And in this book, he actually uses uh, the account of the children of Israel in the wilderness and creating that idol, and God was not enough for them, and they wanted something they could control, and they had fears and doubts and all these kinds of things, so they make this calf. And he makes this observation that the problem with with the fear of man is it's a form of idolatry, And the problem with that is whatever we worship, 
gets control of who we are and what we do. And so all of a sudden now, if, if God, when people are big and God is small, people direct what we should do and think. If I'm caring more about what somebody thinks about me uh, than, uh, than about what God ultimately thinks or thinks I should do, I have succumbed to the fear of man. And the reason this is, I, I think, a helpful book for yourself and then also the way they write these books, uh, Ed Welch and... Um, I forget who his mentor was, who's with the Lord now, another really great one that would write these biblical counseling books, but they write them in such a way that it's helpful to you, so he's counseling you, but it also helps you then counsel other people, and it it gives insight that you might not always think about, especially in relationship to the fear of man. One of the reasons this is such a beneficial book is because you're all of a sudden seeing like, wow, I have a lot more fear of man than I realized. You know, like some of you were going to get this book off the book table, but you were afraid of what people would think when you grabbed it, right? That's what Kelsey was this morning. She was about to get it, and she said something to me, and then she was just afraid. Like, is anybody, what are they going to think about me? I, ta- I caught her on that, so. And I meant to, yeah, so anyway, but he says this. This is what he says. However you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. Of course, the fear of man goes by other names. When we are teenagers, it is called peer pressure. When we are older, it is called people-pleasing. Recently, it has been called codependency. With these labels in mind, we can spot the fear of man everywhere. <clears throat> okay, so we'll see it in all different places in our lives as you... Uh, as you go through it. And then he has probing questions in this beginning section that will, you'll, you'll fall in and under one of those headings or, or multiple ones, I'm sure, in certain areas of your life, okay? So I'm recommending that. And, the, and the, uh, ultimately, of course, he'll conclude uh, uh, that the fear of the Lord is the overcoming of the fear of the man, that the Lord is the one that matters and that guides and directs, Okay. So that will tie into this. If you're interested in it, if you've got time to read something, when people are uh, big and God are small, you probably find that interesting. All right, now I want to do something different here tonight. Uh, not too different. We're going to end, eventually end up back in Exodus 34 where we've been. But I want to start in John chapter 12 in honor of the fact that it is Palm Sunday. And I want to have a little discussion here about the cross specifically in verse 27 this is of course the after uh, in John chapter 12 uh, John gives his triumphal entry account verses 20 to 26 some of these Uh, Gentiles came to Philip and asked to see Jesus. And then Jesus knew, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the hour, of course, is the hour of his suffering and death. So he becomes aware of this. Now look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The cross of Christ. Yeah, you're going to want to go all the way back. Just go all the way back to the gym. Yep. It's the pizza delivery guy, it looks like. So. Yeah, what was I thinking? Wait. <laughs> you better be afraid now. Who turns down pizza, right? Yeah, wouldn't they if they came in and found us eating it? Yeah. All right, well, anyway, the cross brings glory to God. And my question for us tonight, for you all, and us to think about for just a few minutes, is how does the cross bring glory to God? Now, this is a doctrine of God class. We've been talking about the glory of God. Um, revealed in his attributes and, and such. And so let's think about this idea of God being glorified in something so horrific, actually, which would have actually been a very horrible thing to watch and to see, would be the cross of Christ, bloody, horrible, painful, and resulting in death. And yet... At the cross, God is glorified in that. So how so? Sandy. Yes. Right. And to me, his his name was glorified through that because he got enough of all of us. Hmm. He loved us so much. He didn't want anybody to perish. Hmm. And so that's what he had to do. Yeah. That's what he must do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah, good. So, so the, the motive of the cross brings glory to God, right? And the salvation of sinners. How else is God glorified? Aaron. Mm-hmm. 
and that it was God who was going to do that. And so again, it was God saying, this is the one who must be raised up, mm -hmm. that you must look to and focus on. And in that, it's because it was God, the Father, his divine plan. Yeah, good. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, 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 good. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay good. good. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, Maggie. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, good. Love would be a, a glorifying aspect from God. Yeah, Raphael. Yeah. Yeah. Right, good, good. Okay, okay, so in all the Dwayne, one more. Because his purpose was fulfilled with what now? Yes, good. His purpose was fulfilled. So I heard a number, uh, a few, like what, what have we been studying in Doctrine of God? We've been studying about the attributes of God, right? Things that we attribute to who God is. The sum of his perfections, his attributes. And I had a conversation with somebody recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, another pastor who's actually teaching in the doctrine of God. He made mention of the cross and said something to the effect of all the attributes of God are on display in the cross. And um, I, I thought about the word all, and I thought, I, I really got to give that more thought. But I do know that many of the attributes of God are on display in the cross. Okay? okay? Now, now let, let me ask, ask the question, question that way. What, what attributes of God are displayed on the cross? And I know we already had, somebody said love, right? Love is displayed in the cross. And how is that? How is God's attribute of love displayed on the cross? Right, in dying for sinners. That's love, okay? Uh, what was the other one? The other attribute somebody said. Anyway, what other attributes do we see on the cross? Eternality? Explain. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay, yeah, good, good. That, has, that was something I hadn't thought of, and that is, that is good. Only that, that could have only been accomplished by God in that time frame. Because that's a big question people ask. How does the cross, Jesus dying on the cross for a matter of hours, satisfy God's righteous man? So that's good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's a good one. What else, Vivi? Yeah, but he fulfilled his 
That's right. So his faithfulness is on display, right? Um, isn't there a movie out now about Abraham and offering Isaac uh, as a sacrifice? And the, and the phrase was, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And um, pointing in all the promises that were coming for the forgiveness of sins and all the promises that were coming for uh, eternal salvation for his people and these things, um, the, the cross... As I think, thought about faithfulness, the faithfulness of God is that he fulfilled this in, in his son. Flory. Yeah, good one, okay? That's a, that's a primary one that sometimes um, isn't necessarily brought out as it should be. The justice of God or the righteousness of God I spell that right? Okay. It doesn't look right. Maybe it's just my handwriting. It's my handwriting. But anyway, justice of God, uh, because oftentimes in the cross we tend to focus on the love of God, right? Nobody ever focuses on the eternality of God, but that was a good one that Aaron brought out. That's really good. Faithfulness of God, perhaps, but justice, no. Justice is being satisfied. It shows just what we study in Romans 3, right? That you can't that God passed over former sins and he can't do that. He cannot not punish sin, right? Okay, good. Now, Sandy, you were going to say something. Okay. There's an element. There's an element yeah. of not fear. Maybe is it fear? Would he be fearful? Can he be fearful? Yeah, his soul was anxious, and and I think his humanity was right. It was shrieking back at the pro- prospects. See, what's interesting is is that what you see in the Passion Week, and really one of the things we should think about and focus on, like as we're thinking through the Passion Week, is the humanity of Christ and the suffering that was undergone in his humanity. So that obedience factor would apply not, uh, I, not to the attribute of God himself, but to the incarnate Son, right? That he's showing this obedience in the cross. Yeah. All right, so justice. Anything else? Yeah, Mike. Sure, absolutely, right? How so, though? Do you want to explain a little? Or? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a benevolent care, uh, act of God is the cross. He, he wasn't under any obligation, as we've looked at very clearly in our study here. Um, about the doctrine of God. And all, that all-encompassing goodness, by the way, um, I've been reading more from um, uh, Sharnock on that, as I brought up last week, and we went through some of his quotes on there. 
And that's really kind of insightful to me more and more. And Graham started reading a little bit of it too. And we, we did a podcast on a little bit of it. And we'll do another podcast on some of those coming up just because the, the goodness of God, as I mentioned last week, is an all-encompassing attribute that, uh, the, that it's a source of his outworkings of other things that he does. It's his goodness, really. And it's a really powerful attribute to meditate upon is the goodness of God. So love, eternality, faithfulness, justice, goodness. Mercy, right, okay. And we talked about a little bit of that last week in the mercy of God. Who didn't experience mercy at the cross? Jesus. Something to think about. What else? Okay, so uh, the perfection of God, the faultness of God, faultlessness of God, maybe the holiness of God, the aspect or the that. So, right, yeah, yep, the holiness of God. And I'm thinking too, not just in when we think about these attributes, and we're going to ponder these attributes of God in the cross. We're not just thinking about the act of the Son. But we're thinking of the totality of it, right? So we're thinking of the totality of God because we have to understand that the triune God was um, active in the cross, right? The triune God was active in the cross. It involved the triune God um, in his indivisible entirety and what he was doing in all of it. So... Yeah, his judgment against sin um, and under the justice, the righteousness. The wrath, that's the one I was just looking at my notes. This is a big one. The wrath of God. This is why we sing the Gettys, right? On that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. That is appeasing the wrath of um, the righteous God and uh, satisfying his demands for justice. Which with you say holiness, it's bound up in the holy act of the Father accepting the gift that was holy of the yeah. Son with the holy consecration of the Holy Spirit involved in it all. Right. I just mentioned that the trying aspect of God in the cross. Yes, yes, yes. Good. good. And... Um, <coughs> Okay, good. Uh, compassion is another one I had that I was thinking of, the compassion of God. Another one you really got to think about in the cross because the compassion is being displayed um, for sinners. So, good. Now, uh, I want to show you something. So Jesus said, um, Father, glorify your name. And I want you to turn now to Exodus 34 with that in mind and thinking about this idea. Now, here we are now in Exodus 34. We'd been looking at Exodus 33 where Moses had asked the question to see his glory. He said, you cannot see my glory and live, but I'm going to let all my 
goodness pass before you? And then that's where he said in Exodus 33, you know, uh, I will be gracious to him, I'll be gracious, and will show mercy on him, I'll show mercy. But then we get to the point where, where the Lord is going to do this display for Moses, hides him in the cleft of the rock, and the Lord passed by him, verse 6. Well, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, yeah, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. Now, in that statement... Okay. Let's remember that at this point in history, there's no written revelation from God to his people other than what Moses is receiving on the, tent, on the mount, or on mount Sinai. And he's getting Ten Commandments, portions of the law at this point. But... There, is, there isn't all the fullness of the revelation that we have, which is always amazing when you're reading the account of these people in the Bible and you're seeing that they don't have the same information we do. We always have a benefit they didn't have. We know things that they would have loved to have known. <laughs> and we, we have so much more information, but they have nothing. And this is really... This uh, description of God is uh, the Lord's self-description. It's the Lord's self-description. Now, we can go through the Scriptures and find lots of descriptions of God, right? Of somebody talking about God. And those things we know ultimately come from God and we know they're right. But this is really the first really detailed self-description of God to the nation of Israel. And the reason I draw that out is because I think that's significant. As I thought about it, that's significant. This is the way the Lord is choosing to summarize who He is with words, really. This is the Lord's summarization, if you will, of who he is. And we can just believe and imagine that the Lord doesn't, isn't wasting his words. These were chosen carefully for a purpose. I think that one of the interesting things about this is as I correlated this with even what, when, I, when I'm thinking about the cross and the name of the Lord being, and the name of God being glorified at the cross as Jesus prayed, that these attributes that he's mentioned here are present in and through the cross. You know, the, the, all of it from his name and the faithfulness of who he is and his fulfillment of his word, you know, all the way through things like grace and the mercy, you know, and uh, uh, the, the faithfulness of God and keeping steadfast love and uh, forgiveness 
and transgression of sin and by no means clearing the guilty, right? So when we look at the cross and we see these, uh, the, the attributes of God, I think there's a, there is really, in God's self-description of himself, the uh, perfect and omniscient uh, re- revelation of himself with these words that he's chosen to use, I think there is something really significant uh, to that. These words and even the order of the words God has chosen to reveal himself to Moses are important, and that's why we're spending so much time in each one, and they allow us actually really to uh, branch out into other things. And I would say this, that with these, in, in Exodus 34, in what the Lord has said to him, in who he is, in giving him this self-description, uh, he is really giving attributes then that are fundamental to who he is. If you want an understanding of who God is, these words are fundamental to your understanding of God. There are many other words that describe who God is and describe the attributes of God, but these are the ones that God has chosen to summarize who He is to Moses in showing His goodness, and so these are fundamental, right? Uh, we need these incorporated into our thoughts of who God is. When Moses or the other Israelites were thinking of God, these are the things that God wanted them thinking about himself. Does that make sense? And how important that is? Um, I find that when you take a passage of Scripture like this, and you have, I'm sure you have found it yourself, and you, you think about it for not just a few minutes, but days or weeks or even months, that every time you go back into it, you see something a little different and another little nuance or what have you. These are really, these are really great things to meditate upon about the Lord's uh, self-revelation, okay? All right, now, um, what we'll do then, let's, let's look, before we get to these, I think, before we look at these, I, didn't, I don't want to just pass over the, the hiding of Moses in the cleft of the rock, so to speak. I don't want to just pass that over, okay? So if you go back up to chapter 33, remember he said, you can't see my, me and live, no man can see my face and live. Verse 21, the Lord said, this is back in 33 now, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in, in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord had to take Moses and prepare a place for him in order to get this passing by glimpse of his glorious goodness and to protect him. I think that's the important thing that we need to see. This was an act of protection for Moses, implying that if God had not done that and passed by Moses as he had done and thundered his name and his attributes before Moses, it would have been detrimental to Moses. 
Now, we talked about the glory of God and the fact that God, there is a visible manifestation of God's glory that is going on right now in heaven as an example. That there, there His glory is uniquely seen like you see it. Or when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, on that mount, he was, you could see the glory uh, radiating off of his being. So there's this visible demonstration of God's glory. And we learned that God, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, dwells in an unapproachable light that no one has seen nor can see. There is an element of God's being that is apparently incinerating to the uh, eye of human beings. And I think this is really in relationship. If we look at Isaiah 6, I want to show you something here that I think was uh, a connection to this. We do have the privilege of having a few throne room glory scenes in Scripture uh, just enough for our imaginations maybe to run wild and to see some things, but not what we really, everything we'd like to know or see, but we get to see some of these things. And of course, this is the well-known account of Isaiah's vision of the Lord, and it says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The idea of this seraphim and those, you know, he had the wings shielding his, his uh, face and, uh, and uh, displaying the glory of God in this, covering his feet in an act of... Uh, and for the holiness of God. And then in verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or perhaps, may His glory fill the whole earth. We actually sang a song, I think, this morning that said that. Uh, May His glory fill the whole earth. Now, when in Hebrew... The idea is repetition is emphasis. So God is holy, 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 drawing attention for the hearer, for the reader, to that element of God, that attribute of God of holiness. It is, it is something that God is wanting to be known primarily for, and there is emphasis here in His holiness, and it is striking. And it says, verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, what, is the, what, is, what strikes Isaiah's heart here as he sees and hears about the Lord? What about himself? His sin, right? 
probably his predominating sin comes to his mind immediately, the sin he knows is wrong and does it all the time as Sam Rotman talked about last night and his filthy mouth that he had and the idea that in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God, mankind is struck to the extent now that he calls down essentially a curse upon himself. He is undone. He is sunk. He, he's going to die. And I think that we underestimate at times the absolute holiness of God and that holiness revealed in his glorious being and really the terrifying and dreadful picture that that is and how sin, we sing it all the time. We say, holy, holy, holy. Um, how does it say? Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. The eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. So in order to see the Lord, which we all are promised, we have to be forgiven and we have to be transformed so that we can one day see God and actually be in the presence of God in such a way that we are not incinerated or totally destroyed of our being. And God has provided that way, just as you see the picture of it in here in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Again, what is that picturing for us ultimately? The cross and uh, the one who would uh, bear that wrath, uh, bear the righteous justice and indignation of, of God so that we can have this experience with God. So when we think of God shielding Moses, you know, we sing another song of this. Um, hold on here, let me think. Uh, Rock of Ages cleft for me. And, uh, and at the last verse, right? The last verse is like, when, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now, as that author wrote that song, and he's thinking about, he's pondering it's Augustus Toplady, I think is his name. What a formal name that is. Um, but he, he writes a song, he's thinking about Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock that has been prepared for him, and what comes to his mind? Who does he think that's picturing, that cleft of protection? Jesus, right? Let me hide myself in thee, provided for us shielding us ultimately from the holiness and wrath of God. Everything, by the way, in our study of the doctrine of God, I think it, it's incomplete if we're not continually pointing back towards the God incarnate, Jesus, right? Shouldn't in all of our study of God and in, in, its, in His 
being and essence and triunity and attributes then be pointing us towards the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right, into Jesus Christ. So we don't want to disconnect those, always be a gospel people, even in our study of the doctrine of God. Okay, so we talked about, so that's about thinking about through the idea of the glory of God, again, the holiness of God, the need for protection, the need for forgiveness that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. Any thoughts on that or comments or questions? Good. We'll end it there, okay? And next week, we're going to look at God's long nose. God is long of nose. I don't know if you knew that. He has a long nose. I'm going to let you ponder that one. Don't Google it, though, because then you'll know. You will. You will Google it. I know. God is long of nose. What does that mean? We'll see next week. So you got to... What's that? Yes, in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. I grew up singing that song. I don't like it. I think the words are nice. Because there is that line, he covers me there with his hand. Yes, yes. But I, as soon as I hear that song, interestingly, because I looked that one up too, as soon as I heard that song, or hear that song, I flash back to being a kid in church singing it. It's amazing how those songs... No, it wasn't at all. Not a bad thing. There were just certain songs as kids when they do it. Maybe it's the tune, the melody, or whatever. That you'd open it up and you're like, oh, okay, whatever. But, you know, it was, they're good, though. I don't want to diminish that song. I'm sure some of you like that song. No. No, as in the nose on your face. Yeah. Yeah. Perplexing. Perplexing. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 So. Well, yeah. No. If we were going with the Pinocchio thing, it would be opposite because his nose grew as he lied. Remember. <laughs> oh yeah. I know that's what I'm saying. You all will, and then you'll know already, and it's ruined. It's ruined. All right. Yeah, this is the cliffhanger at the end of your favorite show every week, and you're like, what, i got to wait till next week? Just think if this was the last class for the whole semester and you had to wait, you know, like the season finale of a show that you watch. Then you're like, i got three months to wait for this. What am I going to do? So, But, yeah, you can Google it. What's that? Yeah, except next week's Easter, so it's two weeks from tonight. Sorry, guys. All right, here it is. Ready? Everybody want it tonight? The expression that when God, when the Lord says that he is slow to anger, the literal Hebrew expression is long of nose. That's it. So every time you come across that in your Old Testament, and it says that God is slow to anger, a Hebrew reader is reading long of nose. I know. Well, well, we'll we'll think about that, right? We'll have to think that through. It's just a, it's a figure of speech that would be very familiar to them. So, now you know.
but we'll talk about what the implications of that are. All right, thank, uh, thank you, God, for uh, teaching us from your word and leading us and guiding us. We thank you for the opportunity to do this. I thank you for everybody that comes out and, uh, God, that are eager to know you more, and I pray that you would bless them as they seek you and as we think about your attributes, even in this upcoming week, which is so important to us to think about the cross and what you have done there through your son for us and uh, in preparing us for Easter. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All righty, thank you, everybody.